Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Uh, okay, Todd. Um, speaking of haircutting parties, I just realized that uh, I'm a bit late for an appointment myself. Okay. So uh, can I can I get my bouffant looked at and maybe we can uh, pick up this conversation next time? Uh, that sounds like oh god sorry <laughs> sorry that cough came out of nowhere. Let's do that. I again. think it came out of your your throat. Hey everyone, it's Elliot and Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today, we continue talking about the formation of the pop art scene. And the introduction of its greatest superstar. He made the lowbrow highbrow. And along the way, agitated a lot of people. So let's raise our glasses to the master manipulator himself back here in the bar. Are we back? We're back. <laughs> yes. Okay. Todd, we're back. Uh, yep. We've wet our whistles here. I made sure to check my cocktail for hair <laughs> because yeah. we're yeah. talking about a, a hair cutting party. Um, hair from. Uh, okay. I'm a little. <laughs> I'm a little scared to ask. I'm gonna ask yeah. hair from wherever. Like, I mean, mm. a hair cutting party, I keep thinking about a light dusting of fuzz all over some cucumber sandwiches or in a punch <laughs> bowl. Like, what? what when you say uh, hair cutting party, what, what uh, is this? Is this code for something? Yeah, I thought it was code for something, too. Okay. Um, as I said, um, uh, the apartment uh, was the home of Billy Lennock, who would come to be known as Billy Name. Uh, he was an artist and a lighting designer for, guess where? Our favorite place, Judson Memorial Church. Oh, man. Look, the threads weave in one another again. I know. It's all one big connected haircutting mess. But he was also <laughs> he was also a part-time barber. And he would hold, he literally would hold these haircutting parties. Again, it sounds like there's something else going on at his Lower East Side apartment. And he'd do as many as 100 haircuts a night. So, okay, so it's almost like people are coming he's charging for this i imagine like it's probably I almost doubt like a, it. oh really probably bringing him like alcohol a, or like something like a yeah or a rent party or something like that yeah, like that's yeah. what i was thinking Maybe. like you know hey i got to cut hair and i have to pay my monthly rent so hey 10 bucks so, a haircut or something <laughs> i don't know yeah. i don't think he was that good of a barber but yeah so it doesn't so the question is why the silver factory right we got we started talking about haircutting parties oh yeah i, I forgot all about that part i know so <laughs> Billy Name's apartment uh, was decorated in all silver, foil, mirrors, you know, everything. And Andy was captivated by this, this party, and he asked him to do the same for the new space that he rented. Um, and Billy Name basically moved in to decorate mm, the factory okay. and started picking up other odd jobs. 
um, for Andy and ended up staying seven years. He basically was the factory's still photographer. He helped make <laughs> movies. Um, he would go on to be like the factory foreman and archivist. So really, the reason we know so much about Andy is because of Billy Name. So I guess when this guy was taking photos, there wasn't much flash photography with the, <laughs> everything was so highly reflective <laughs> between the silver and the mirrors. That'd be a, that'd be a yeah. nightmare. Okay, yeah. so why silver? Okay, good question. Well, uh, I think Andy saw a whole lot of connections to the things that he was into. The silver screen. All right, sure. You know, maybe his silver hair. Uh, he was... He was wearing blondish wigs at the time. Uh, you know, a narcissist would easily tell you mirrors are backed with mm-hmm. silver, right? Um, astronauts uh, wore silver uh, uniforms and spaceships were silver and okay. technology was silver. And it happened to be ha- happened to be sort of the chosen decor <laughs> of speed freaks in the early 60s, too. Okay, well, this... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I don't but know I mean, why. If you think about... Um... Heading into the disco era of the '70s and stuff, you know, disco balls, uh, all okay, okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah, it's kind of futuristic. It was a it yeah, light did funky shit. Yeah. Okay, you know, even cars, right? Cars had chrome. So yeah, uh, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm buying this. Okay, makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. All right. Keep going. So, Billy Name did more than just decorate the place with silver. He's actually the one that started introducing this clique of New York City, uh, I'm doing quotes here, personalities and drug <laughs> addicts to the factory. Okay, uh, so he was, he, it sounds like, he was sort of the A&R guy for Andy. He was. He was, um, he knew the people. Andy didn't. Andy was shy. and Right. Um, and he, these were his you know, Lower East Side friends. And uh, as time went on, Andy became more and more drawn to these, uh, what can we call them now? Bohemian eccentrics, maybe. <laughs> sure. I mean, even the beats were bohemian eccentrics. Yeah, yeah. That's and fair. So the factory, at first, it became this spot for junkies and drag queens, hangers-on, and wannabe this or that. Uh, but soon, Andy uh, and the factory became household names as, as like a hub of design and fine art and music and movies and parties and celebrity worship and and it was a hot time for the silver factory is that because of the art coming out of the place is that because yeah. of the people who are coming through and just the gossip and the reputation did they yes. actually do things that were covered in magazines and newspapers yes absolutely um it took off actually the first thing they did at the silver factory uh, it was the Brillo boxes, oh, and um, okay. we we okay. can post some photos. There's photos out there where they're they're lined up. It looks like an assembly line as they're um, screening and printing them. But he was able with this space and with the help now of um, more assistants, he was able to crank out a bunch of work in that period. It was. Think of Elvis's, the Car Crash series, Mona Lisa series, more Maryland. And mm-hmm. pretty soon he started focusing on film. Yeah, he had the uh, space. Uh, he had the help to do film. And, um, you know, it was what he wanted to move to. And you probably are familiar with some of the famous movies of that time. Kiss, uh, Eat, um, Bojo, 
Sleep. Wait, I'm sorry. Ba- what, what was that? What was that uh, last part? Kiss. Kiss. Eat. Uh-huh. Uh, Blowjob. Sleep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Batman Dracula. <laughs> Vinyl. For, uh, listeners, for the record, I think Todd said blowjob. I mean, you could, okay. you're simply quoting a title of a Yeah, I am. I am. You're right. Um, interesting movie, too, by the way. I, I got to watch it. Did it suck? Oh, man. How long have you been sitting on that one? <laughs> um, <but laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, there's movies, so many directions that joke could go. It just writes itself, doesn't it? it does. um, yeah. So he did. He he really started cranking out the movies like all the other art. Um, and every celebrity that came through New York had to make a stop at the factory. It was it was like the place to be. So much was written about it. And I really wanted to dig into this scene, as you know. And I really wanted to find out more fully what it was like. Like, what was day-to-day like, you know? Sure. I know you love a scene. So this is national in scope. This is going well beyond international. New York City. Yeah, 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 international. Yeah, yeah so, I, I mean, uh, the Rolling Stones drop sure, by. You know, sure. like, if you thought you were cool, you would go to the factory and Andy would deem you cool or not. So. Wow, uh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, it was a scene. Consider this a club of eccentrics. They were coming and going, creating stuff. It was a it was a very porous social space to assemble and reassemble in this ever-changing party of oddballs. Uh, someone at the time said there was no middle class at the factory, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. It was either the lower socioeconomic outcasts and they chilled with Harvard graduates and art world socialites and trust fund kids from uptown. Yeah, so, okay. It almost sounds like this was his, this was Warhol's master project. It was sort of this giant performance art project. Good and point, people yeah. were sort of self-admitting or auditioning in a weird way to be part of this project. So... Obviously, it sounds to me people are wanting to get into this. Um, there's maybe some, I don't know what you, social logistics, shall we say, yeah. involved in who you're going to let in, who you're not going to let in, what the criteria is, even if it wasn't public or, you mm-hmm. know, articulate. Mm-hmm. So was there any so-called velvet rope? I mean, we've talked about how... Once something goes mainstream, once it gets too big, it starts to get watered down and it starts to get lame. Yeah, good point. I think in Andy's world, uh, to get past the velvet rope, well, he, he said either uh, he really loved beautiful people and good talkers. Um, well, if it were only the second one, I think we could have been part of that scene. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And I think also if you happen to be extreme. Um, but of those people, it was pretty open. Um, these people were coming and going night and day. And like I said, Andy was kind of working around the clock, too, uh, sure, on his yeah, diet yeah. pills. I mean, yeah, he was on speed. Yeah, he yeah. didn't keep, keep office hours, shall we say. No, yeah. <laughs> he invited anyone weird or famous to stop by. And um, there's a documentary called The Life of Andy Warhol by Rick Burns. And, um, and he says uh, in this documentary, he's open to 
Uh, okay, I'll do it the way he does. He says, whatever comes along. I had this girl call yesterday with a script called Up Your Ass and thought the title was great. I'm so friendly. I told her to come up. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he's shy and he says, yeah, I'm so like, friendly. <laughs> I'm so friendly. I told her to come up. Um, so, so right. yeah. So, by 1966, <laughs> I would say Andy was getting pretty comfortable with this celebrity and artist as a sellout. He even placed an ad in the Village Voice that read, I'll read this to you in quotes, okay. I'll endorse with my name any of the following, clothing, ACDC, cigarettes, small tapes, sound equipment, rock and roll records, anything, <laughs> film and film equipment, food, helium, whips, money, <laughs> love and kisses, Andy Warhol. <laughs> El five nine nine four one. I love how anything was in the middle of the list. You're like these, this going. is the list of things. In, in case you're in case you're wondering what that encompasses, I will continue with more examples. <laughs> yeah, the food, yeah. food, helium, and whips, <laughs> and then all capitals money. Yeah, uh, so yeah, he was actually amazing. he would actually people would send him bills, a you know currency, and he would sign them and send them back. Uh, hey, I, I assume he paid that you had to pay him for that too. We could do that. We, we could uh, just you, have people send us bills, and and then that's it. Yeah, yeah. Not like their it. electric bill. I mean, like no. like you know, five dollar bills, ten dollar bills. They could send us. We uh, okay, listeners. We collect presidential portraits, preferably U.S. <laughs> presidents, and we would love to add your material to our gallery. Yes, we would. We would give you full credit in our bar that you're that that work is on loan from from your house, um, mm -hmm. and give you credit for those yeah, presidential we could, portraits. We could loan it to the bar for safekeeping in I think exchange that's a great for some idea. drinks. Oh man, that's we, a great idea. Look, we, we're like the factory 2.0. We are. I, that would be cool. I, I would have to say. Uh, we learned a lot from the original factory. We might have to have somebody at the door. <laughs> <laughs> While we go hide if they're looking for us. That's right. That's right. That's right. So in the spirit of transparency, I have to tell you, I've kind of been playing with you a little bit over the past couple minutes, you and the listeners. I've dropped a couple of Easter eggs in what I was just talking about that are going to make a lot of sense in future episodes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're you, you you're, got it? Did you catch any of them? Don't say if you did. Okay, Todd. Easter eggs. Um, well, um, not to get too personal, but you've gotten me so excited. I think mm -hmm. I need to take a break for a second to make sure that um, all the drinks that have gone in aren't accidentally going to come back out. <laughs> uh, you're going to go find some Easter eggs of your own, I guess. Um, in a way. Okay. All right. All right. Everybody, take a break. Refresh your drinks, and we'll be back shortly. Yeah. I. Is that what they call the urinal mints? Are they called Easter eggs? <laughs> so, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The Solution Show. From the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? 
Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals, the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website or send an email to hello at two designers walk into a bar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now back to the bar. You're becoming, it's pretty obvious, I think, to both me and the listeners, you're sort of the Andy Warhol of this whole setup. You're well, just like stringing us along, manipulating us. Andy enjoyed playing with the public, kind of mm-hmm, like you. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. so what was... You know, we're kind of painting a picture of what our life in the bar is like, but what was the day-to-day factory life like? I mean, you talked about lining up these Brillo boxes yeah. and stuff like that, but it, it it sounds like there was more chaos than order. I think so. I found a couple, uh, well, there's a lot of quotes. Uh, again, I don't know that anything has been more well-documented, um, but I found some interesting takes on that. One by the musician John Cale. Oh, Velvet Underground, sure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this was uh, not that long ago in comparison. Uh, actually, in an interview in 2002, he said, It wasn't called the factory for nothing. It was where the assembly line for the silk screens happened. While one person was making a silk screen, somebody else would be filming a screen test. Every day, something new. Which kind of sounds exciting to me, right? Yeah, that's it sounds kinda, like a kind of like the Eames studio or something. It's yeah, like all these yeah. different types of art happening and feeding off one another. It's like an incubator. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Gerard Malenga, who we haven't really mentioned him a lot, but he was really Andy's chief collaborator. He was one of the first people that Andy hired and was with him for a long time. Uh, he said the factory was a gathering place for the Jet Set artist contingent. And then he lists Salvador Dali, Tennessee Williams, Judy Garland, Montgomery Cliff. This sounds like a hellscape of, of like people <laughs> really, coming together. To, yeah, that, yeah, that just sounds like mad, 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 mad world. Yeah, uh, Brian Jones, Bob Dylan, uh, Michelangelo Antonio, um, all paid visits one time or another. You've heard of Ultraviolet, right? Yes. She said, we wanted attention. Fame was the cosmic glue of the factory, which I think that's cool. And then uh, another uh, one of his uh, people went on to uh, be fairly famous. Fran Lipovitz said, Andy made fame more famous. (laughs) (laughs) Fame 2.0, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, there's a quote by Andy in this uh, great book called Popism, and he said, we usually work till around midnight, and then we'd go out to the village to places like Cafe Figaro, the Hip Bagel, the Kettle of Fish, the Gaslight, the Cafe Bazaar, and Chino. Oh, man. Okay. This is great because, uh, again, closing the circle with our earlier era, Gaslight, Cafe Bazaar, those are a couple yeah. of beat hangouts. We've heard of those, haven't we? Yep. It's good to see the torch being passed. Um, Andy would go on to say, get home around four in the morning, make a few phone calls, usually talk to Henry Geltzeller, who was the Museum of Modern Art curator and sort of pop art champion. And then as it started to get light. So wait, hold on a second. Pump the brakes. He gets home yeah. around four in the morning and yeah. he starts calling other people. Calls the guy with the job, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess if exactly. you're that famous and, and you're the art guy, right? You're the sun in which everything else is orbiting around. I guess you make time at four in the morning when Andy Warhol calls you. Yeah. Job yeah. or no job, right? Yeah. He'd take a little nap for a couple hours and then be back at the factory that afternoon. And, you know, he was working, as I said, night and day. And as you've talked about, it wasn't just like... He wasn't just there generating ideas. He was the idea receiver. Like these people that were hanging out there uh, were causing ideas to happen. Okay. So as you're talking, I'm thinking of a few ways the factory of the early to mid-60s influenced pop culture even now, right? These ripples yeah, that yeah. have extended. So experimental film, Mm-hmm. Multimedia involving music, mm-hmm. these sort of like performance art presentations, mm-hmm. things like this. So, yeah, what else was going on? What what sort of influences that am I overlooking? Well, no, well, you 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 nailed it. Um, and uh, you know, if you think about some of the lasting influences, so the factory was both a space and a scene. It mm-hmm. was a significant cultural institution that just thrived out of the bounds of the mainstream. And the Silver Factory in particular served as kind of the antidote to the bougie art elite. So, Yeah, it was this lowbrow art cathedral. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was, it was, um, it, it was exhibiting art in a place that is not supposed to have art. So if you think about that, more non-traditional downtown spaces started popping up. Judson Memorial Church, for instance. Um, again, the East Village storefronts started hosting art happenings. And even venues like CBGB's uh, embraced that format. Mm. Small galleries mm-hmm. started popping up all over Soho. It's hard to think now, at a time, there weren't galleries everywhere in Soho. Right, right. But there was, uh, and this they started happening. The, the loft spaces in and around the village in Soho became these uh, alternative performance spaces. And I think the Silver Factory helped blur the lines between social and artistic identities. It challenged the stuffy institutions and got creativity out of the, the sort of old-school, venerable halls and literally in the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the academy to the people. Yeah, yeah. And they also they also made us really kind of focus on things like celebrity culture and fame and sensationalism. And I'm not sure if it's a co- coincidence or not, but uh, I happened to do a little bit of checking here. And I found out that the National Enquirer 
was a struggling tabloid until it revamped its format to focus on outrageous sensationalism. And finally, it reached a circulation of a million when 1966. Oh, wow. Well, Todd... Bat Boy needs his story told. That's true. And the owner of the National Enquirer at the time, a guy named uh, Generosa Pope Jr., said he got the idea from seeing people gather around auto accidents. Oh, boy. Rubberneckers. This sounds yeah, familiar. It does, right? And so the last influence, I would say, is the factory properly ushered in what we know now as 1960s counterculture. The, the underground became widely acceptable, and by the time Warhol's reputation had exploded, he was just killing it all the time. And that was uh, that that sort of looseness, that freedom of expression, uh, was just part of the growing counterculture. <laughs> yeah, with help from diet pills and barbiturates, and and people peeing on art. <laughs> yes. And um, you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting, and I think uh, it it really does tell the tale here. These were some crazy times in the early to mid-1960s, and the factory was Andy's biggest, most ambitious art project ever. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like you said, when you think about it, it was sort of this living, breathing art thing. It would prove to be his most controversial, too. So... Turns out, real people aren't soup cans. Ah, uh, okay. So it sounds like you know something that you yeah, haven't told us yet. Yeah, I know. I'm, you have to tune in uh, next time because I'll say this. Here's what I'll say. Okay. Things change. What goes up? All that glitters isn't silver. Pick your cliche, whichever one you want, Elliot, because, you know, people get intoxicated with power and... More in the next episode, which will start with a bang, I'll say. Hmm. Hey, uh, I have an idea. Speaking of being intoxicated, <laughs> isn't it almost time for another round of drinks? I think it is. I think it is. Uh, appreciate the conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and tune in next time. All right. Take care, folks. Refresh your drinks as well, and we'll talk soon. I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.